Hey everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. The job cuts just changed the market. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Peter Bookvar, CIO of Bleakly Financial Group. Hi, Peter. Hi, Maggie. How are you? Good, good. It's great to see you. And and this is the last trading day of what is going to be a shortened trading week. And you could kind of feel it a little bit, but boy, that labor market data grabbed everyone's attention. Um, I'll just run through it quickly for those who may have missed it. Challenger Gray and Christmas reported planned layoffs jumped 15% month on month. But year on year, over 300%. That's a that's a big change. Weekly jobless claims were over 200,000 again. And we've got that big monthly jobs report out tomorrow. Even though the market's closed, the government is releasing it. What's your sense of what's happening with the labor market? Are we are we finally seeing the froth come out and, and that shoe dropping? Well, the most interesting thing was that jobless claim data because it included five years of revisions. And for the past call it three months of the year, we've been scratching our heads on why are jobless claims so low. Uh, continuing claims had been ticking higher to close to multi-year highs, but it was initial jobless claims, for which for many weeks was printing below 200. But here comes today, the government revises uh, the data over the past five years, as I said, but, but particularly the last three months, it was a much higher level of initial claims than first reported. So this begins to make a bit more sense. And also continuing claims now back above 1.8 million, which if you don't include COVID, you're talking about the highest level um, in years. So that is sort of a, a chink in the armor of, okay, the labor market is just fine. Uh, and now, and, and this comes a day after ADP, which showed continued deceleration in the pace of hiring. So interestingly enough, the BLS data is now sort of the outlier. Now, of course, we'll see what tomorrow's number brings, but the last few months, the BLS is averaging about 100,000 more private sector jobs than ADP. But now we have the ISM reports showing you know, modest wage gains in employment. We have claims, as I said, we have ADP, and we'll see BLS. Now, it's some one of these months, BLS is going to mean revert, and we're going to see a real disappointing number. But but it makes sense. I mean, you're an employer in this kind of environment. And even if you were one in uh, an industry where you've been desperately trying to find jobs over the last couple of years and have had difficulty finding them, it, it's just smart and prudent to call a timeout considering the state of things, especially after the bank failures. And you're, if you're a small business wondering what your relationship with is with your bank. Uh, and if you're a big company, you are for sure uh, putting a pause on hiring or at least limiting the hires that you take on. That's a great point because we haven't even seen that start. You know, that's just happening in real time now. So that 
idea if you're a small business, even if you wanted to add, you're unsure about what's happening in the banking sector. Those are all the sort of the repercussions of something like that, that we we haven't, that won't show up in the data, at least for a little bit, or, you know, that, that are maybe going to be implemented now. You know, you do, I know you do really rigorous work on the companies that you invest in from a sort of bottoms up perspective, really listening to what they have to say. What are you hearing from management teams? What's the what's the sentiment out there? Because at some point I remember someone saying, listen, this is the most telegraph recession we've ever had. And actually people are feeling okay about it. And then and then we hear the flip. We hear that people are nervous and now we have this banking situation. What are you hearing, you know, on the calls and, and the conversations that you have? So it, it's still um, and the, the ones that I've I've listened to this week, particularly to the you know, in stock in Conagra now totally different industries and MSC Industrial, which is more focused on manufacturing. They're a distributor to uh, the industrial side of the economy. And Conagra, obviously a, a consumer products company with food. Uh, it, it seems to be very mixed. And CEOs are quick to say, hey, you know, we acknowledge what you're seeing. We, we acknowledge the, the, the economic data. Um, but it, it, it's really a level of, of cloudy visibility, I would say. And cloudy visibility in either direction, like MSC Industrial, you know, they the, right now where they stand, you know, granted they have a lot of aerospace business, so that's sort of insulated from what we're seeing in other parts of the economy. But you know, they think that things are somewhat stable, but they acknowledge that we're you know more cautiously optimistic than optimistic. You know, I'm more cautious and not optimistic, particularly with manufacturing, where we've seen the ISM. And S&P global numbers that uh, U.S. recession is here in manufacturing. Uh, with respect to Conagra, interestingly, you know we continue to see with them and, and all the other consumer products companies, whether it's food or it's uh, non-durables, consumer non-durables, it's continued revenue growth all because of price and mm. continue to drop. Uh, now they're somewhat unique and not really giving us a good feel of of how the macro is. Uh, we'll certainly get that beginning late next week when we uh, start to get the bank earnings and we get to hear not just what's going on in the deposit side, but what's going on on the loan loss side. Uh, we did see uh, auto sales this week, you know, talking about the economy, and it was actually a slightly better number, but it had more to do with higher fleet sales and improved inventory situation where auto manufacturers are just shipping more cars to the dealers just to sort of play catch up. So it, it's sort of like this hangman of, of we're sort of in like almost in no man's land in a way, in terms of we're like on the cusp of something with the economy. And I think that the economy was fragile going into the bank uh, blow up mess and is going to be even more hard hit. Now, we have, okay, so you look at the two areas of financing for the economy we have uh, via the banks, actually three in a way, the banks, the non-banks shadow sector, and those that rely on the broader capital markets, whether it's selling debt or equity or IPOs or whatever. And we can definitely say post Silicon Valley that bank lending is just going to slow. And it was it was slowing going into it, lending standards were tightening, the demand for credit was was slowing. Uh, the non-bank, we can say, okay, well, maybe they'll fill in some of the gaps, and maybe they will, but if you're a non-bank lender in commercial real estate, yeah, you'll fill in some of the gaps, but you're going to be charging 15%. So a, bar a borrower 
facing that is only going to take a 15% loan if they're desperate and they can't raise equity and they don't feel like handing back the keys. And then you look at the capital markets and we went, we went a week or two in March around the bank blow up where there was not one high yield bond deal. I don't think there was even an investment grade bond deal. So the capital market sort of froze up for that couple of weeks. And maybe we've had one or two IPOs this year. So there, there is a, a credit slash cap, cost of capital squeeze that's going on. And it's just going to continue. I think the last time we spoke, I, I was worried about sort of a death by a thousand cuts type of economy. Mm. And I think what's now going to happen with the, the, the bank lending side reinforces my belief that it's going to be about a death by a thousand cuts. That is not going to be one event that we're going to wake up on a Monday morning again and worried about what bank is going to go under. But it's just a, a nick here, a nick there that's going to continue to lead to slower growth as the year progresses. Yeah, that's a great point. And I remember last time you were you were very early with us talking about that that credit reset that everyone who had these loans and let's take housing out of it for uh, for a second because in the U.S. a lot of people went to thirty year fixed after the debacle of the housing crisis of 08. Um, and so they're on they're on at least the mortgage is set at at a lower rate. Not great for new home, but if, but if you've got a mortgage, you're sitting with a good interest rate. But all those other things and I anecdotally just had a friend. Everybody knows that I'm torturously having to look for a car, which is a nightmare. I'm trying to hold off as long as possible. But I just had a friend whose lease was up and they weren't really paying attention, turned it back in the same exact car, newer model, but same exact car. They've done this. They're happy with it. $200 more a month, like for nothing, for the exact same situation, just because of interest rates. And it was a real shock to them. And I think that I thought of you and I thought of what you were talking about. And that's just one person, but multiply that out between small businesses and people when they have to go refinance something. And, and that is a big burden to carry. Absolutely, and I and I saw that with with my wife's car too. That was about two hundred and fifty dollars more than the expiring lease, and that's why this is sort of a slow moving car crash. That each month somebody's payment is going to reset higher, whether it's a car, whether it's somebody's adjustable rate mortgage that they took out that's coming due, or bank debt that's coming due, or or uh, a bond that's maturing. Uh, it's just each month that rates stay high at these levels. And that's why I keep saying that monetary tightening from here doesn't need to take place by a rise in interest rates. All they need to do is stay at these, these high levels for a while that itself chips away at economic activity. Hey, everyone. We're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Yeah, that's a great that just just that pause in and of itself works as a as a dampening or as a break. I, I want to continue on that, but I just want to ask you, you mentioned about uh, that they're able to all of their uh, gains are coming from price increases. What is the inflation situation? I mean, it sounds like companies still have pricing power, but are they do they see that continuing, which means inflation is still high? Are they getting hit on the wholesale side? What's your sense of where we are with inflation directionally? So it's interesting because we had, you know, the initial inflation shock was in the, on the good side, as we know. And we saw the spike up and now goods prices have fallen dramatically on a year-over-year basis. But services in a delayed fashion because of rents keeps accelerating. But rents, I believe, is, are now about to start moderating, but maybe we're going to start to get a lift in goods. And 
one of the things that I don't think people appreciate when they say, oh yeah, inflation's just going to go away and we're past or deflation and this and that is that companies got a major margin hit over the last couple of years and they are still going to do what they can to recapture that lost margin. Like Canagra, to bring them up again, I mean, their gross margin got hit by a few billion dollars by a 30% rise in their costs. So even if their costs start to recede or stop going up, that doesn't mean they stop raising prices to the rest of us because the price increases that they're putting in place now is a lagged attempt to make up for that initial spike in their costs. So, we're, so for mm. example, Canagra said through calendar year, gross inflation they see is going to be up 10%. Uh, MSC Industrial talked about still a lot of price friction in the economy, even though it may not be getting worse, there's still going to be price increases that pass through in a lagged fashion playing catch up. So that's why this whole inflation thing, I, and I hear people say, yeah, inflation is just going to magically go away. We had the most intense inflation pressures in 40 years, and it's just magically going to go away. Well, it's not going to magically go away if you listen to what actual companies are saying. Yes, rents are moderating from here, and, and yes, the service society is going to slow, and rate of, rate of change in inflation is going to continue to moderate, yes. But there is a stickiness to the inflation shock that we've had over the last couple of years. And the question is, is not, okay, inflation goes up like here, and then it goes down here. It's where it, it sort of settles out after that, that right side, sort of that inflation chart. And maybe we won't know until 2024 where that really settles out at. But I continue to say it's not going to be 1% to 2% that we're so used to in all the years leading into COVID. And uh, it's going to be 3 to 4% uh, that is going to be what an inflation rate we're going to have to get used to on a sustainable basis for a variety of structural reasons. So it's in in this same theme, uh, my colleague Andreas released his latest Deno Signals and it's out on the platform. He discusses the dilemma that the Fed's in. Let's have a listen to that clip and we'll talk on the other side. The curve couldn't send us a clearer message. The Fed is close to caving in to the demands of the market. The Fed will need to confirm current market pricing if they want to avoid further banking stress. And my impression from talking to these top investors is that they've also told the Fed to cave in. Uh, and ultimately that increases the likelihood, in my opinion, that we will see a pivot from the Federal Reserve into the second half of the year. On this chart, I show the federal funds rate in light blue versus the spread between the 12th and the fourth contract on the so-called euro dollar curve. So expectations for the Federal Reserve policy going forward 12 months from now relative to four months from now. That spread is uh, very good at predicting trend changes in the Federal Reserve policy. And as you can see, currently the curve basically screams that the Fed needs to bring rates lower. And therefore, I think this is the safest sign you can get from the system that uh, cuts are needed and cuts will uh, obviously be delivered probably with the time lag just due to the fact that the system is screaming for them. 
That entire presentation is available on our website. If you are not a member, just scan the QR code and jump on the trial offer that's there for you. Peter, so many of the macro analysts we've had on Real Vision just in the last few weeks are really presenting it or seem to think that the Fed will have to choose between inflation and financial stability. Do, do you see it that way? How are you thinking about the Fed's actions? I mean, I, I think we're going to reach that point. Uh, but I, I think it's it's important to understand that the days of the Fed just slashing interest rates back to zero is over. So yeah, can the Fed, uh, after maybe hiking one more time, even though I think they should not, and I don't actually think they will, but let's just say they hike another 25 and we go to five and five and a quarter. Yeah, let's just say they cut 75 basis points by year end and we're at four to four and a quarter. Well, four and four and a quarter is still a pretty high Fed funds rate. And they, 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 they can actually view that as, you know what, we're going to relieve some pressure on the banking sector. We'll relieve some pressure on banks having to raise deposit rates um, to, to, to maintain a certain level of, of, of profitability. Uh, but we're not going to go whole hog on this cutting because the economic slowdown, because we still are worried about inflation. So this is a much different, because we have to look at the next step. Is, is it just going to be as easy as a recession? The Fed's going to cut to zero QE and, and they're going to just dust off the, the same used playbook that we've been seeing every single time uh, for the last 20 plus years we go into recession. No, this is going to be a much more difficult situation for the Fed to respond to. So are we going to cheer? Okay, the Fed funds rate goes from five back to four. Well, I, I don't know if that's really something to cheer about when even a 4% Fed funds rate is a risk to economic activity, considering um, you know the debt levels, and it still creates a situation for uh, loans that are maturing that are going to have to reset at a much higher level. So uh, now, can we get sort of a, a burst of excitement initially when the, the Fed stops hiking and they start cutting? Yes, but it, it's happening because we have a recession. And I have to remind everyone that the Fed was cutting well before the bear markets ended in 2002 and 2009. So it's not necessarily a good thing when the Fed starts cutting. And usually bear markets end when the Fed is almost done cutting interest rates, not when they just begin cutting interest rates. But I agree with Andreas that, yeah, they probably will cut, but it, it's going to be a real a difficult balancing act for them uh, in trying to address a recession that are we really going to benefit from rate cuts uh, at the same time that it could reignite inflation, particularly if those rate cuts spur further weakness in the dollar and all of a sudden oil goes back above $100, which I think will happen. And uh, then they're, they're in a real uh, uh, conundrum. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Yeah, and that, uh, Achilles, I think that answers your question. Um, at some point, bad news uh, is bad news for equities, and uh, talk of rate cut is because we are in a in a bad situation. Um, one, one more thing I want to mention, and I, I have got, we've got so many good questions, I need to get to them, but um, you and I spoke about this briefly. Jim Bianco, good friend of our of this show, tweeted something really interesting today about the MOVE index. 
Um, and you told me you also look at it every day. And the move index is to bonds, for those of you who not, may not be familiar, is, is to bonds what the VIX is to equities, right? It's a way to look at sort of volatility in the bond market. Um, and, you know, this is, uh, as Jim was pointing out, hitting levels that it does not usually get to, you know, levels that would indicate that that something is it really, you know, I don't want to say wrong or dangerous. I don't think those are either the words I'm looking at, but there's something coming. There's something that that people are worried about, but we don't see that reflected in the equity market. How are you thinking about this? Well, just some perspective on the move index, the, the five years leading into COVID, uh, it averaged about 65, give or take. And now we're just below 150. So we're seeing bond volatility that's more than double the five-year average leading into COVID. And you can see that in how treasuries have, have, have traded here, particularly since SVB went down, where you know, the two-year went from five to four in, in, in a matter of days, uh, it seemed like, uh, where, where bonds were really trading like meme stocks. And now some of that certainly gets exaggerated by less liquidity in that market, uh, but tying it into the VIX, yeah, it, it's maybe not necessarily correlating, and, and it could be sending a message that uh, we get we have a, a a wave of volatility to come in equities. But even a VIX around twenty, uh, that is the long term average of twenty. But in the QE days, it averaged something like ten to twelve. So even even the VIX is is uh, well above the, the QE salad days of, of low volatility. So you know, I, I don't know how to directly connect the dots. I just know we're in a more volatile world. We're in a much more uh, uncertain world. Now, we're always in an uncertain world, so I usually hate using that word. But I understand the volatility. And whether it's in bonds or stocks, it's just the new world we're in. We are in a higher structural rate environment for a longer period of time, and accidents occur, and that's being reflected in higher volatility and what I think will be continued degradation in multiples of a lot of different things. Yeah. Is it is it a sign that there's some sort of event coming, though, that there's some sort of insta you know, financial instability, some sort of market breakdown, something like that, of that nature? I mean, that is way above the, the, the range or the average that it trades at. Is that is it some sort of warning sign that we should be really conscious of? I, I think when you when you go from zero to five percent in interest rates in in twelve months, uh, things are going to happen, and uh, you know we're, we and and there there are more to take place. Yeah, uh, I just don't know yet if it's going to be like I said one big event or it's just going to be a lot of things that sort of accumulate uh, and that sort of snowball is going down the hill and ends up picking up speed, but initially it may not be going that fast. But yes, yeah. in every month, uh, there's somebody going to be negatively affected by this higher rate environment. And it means that things broadly are going to get uh, impacted. Now, well, how big, where this goes, we're just going to have to see, but it's going to be you know, hard landing. And even if it's not, it, it's going to be it's going to be a, a, a malaise and a challenge for the economy for a while. Uh, we're not just going to have this sort of V economic bottom. And yep. 
which is which is important to point out because a lot of people keep saying, when do I get in like that? You know, we're the trained to sort of look for the bottom. Have we bottomed? And I think when you look at something like that and I wanted to put it on everyone's radar, if you hadn't seen that tweet, you, if you look at something like that, you understand why a lot of the people have been coming on our show say, be patient be conservative, have cash ready, because it feels like there's a lot more pain to get through. Peter, let's jump into a couple great questions here. G, Blackburn asking, uh, Peter, credit stress is not really priced in. How do we trade it? Well, with with respect to the credit stress, not yet, but th it doesn't happen just all at once. It happens slowly. And yeah, credit has hung in this year, but a lot of that has to do with people thinking the Fed is done raising interest rates. Mm. To me, that's been the re relief valve for the credit markets. But, you know, SVB has created a gut check. And while that is sort of centric to the banking sector, a higher cost of capital in the banking sector is going to reverberate to a higher cost of capital throughout. And, you know, I'm watching certainly high yield, particularly triple C spreads, and I am particularly focused on the leveraged loan market, which doesn't have the benefit of higher rates anymore or the lower end of the, of the credit quality spectrum. And I think they're going to be refinancing issues there as well. So just because there hasn't been credit issues yet doesn't mean it's not to come. And I think it's still to come. Uh no one knows thyself asking, does Peter have a view as to which emerging market or just international market will outperform the U.S. in the next year? So I am very bullish on Asia. I think the China reopening is a big deal for not just China, but the Asian region. And now I'm talking specifically about the positive impact of the Chinese consumer. Chinese manufacturing is still going to be challenged by uh, slowing in demand in the U.S. and Europe. Uh, Chinese real estate, residential real estate market is still going to be challenged. But there's a lot of catch-up consumer spending and leisure and hospitality and travel that's going to take place via the Chinese consumer. So we're along, we're along some travel-related things surrounding China, but also Japan, which is obviously not an emerging market. But I think Japan is going to be a great beneficiary. Uh, Singapore along, Vietnam. Uh, to just to name a few. Uh, interesting, and it's, and you're looking mostly equities. If you are in that, are you buy? Is it ETF? Is it companies with exposure? How are you expressing that? So so equities, yes. Some some individual stocks in addition to some country ETFs, but also I really like emerging market local currency bonds. I think the dollar rally has been tightly correlated to Fed tightening. Uh, that dollar rally started uh, in mid-June when the Fed had a mid-June 2021 when Jay Powell said we're, we're finally thinking about tapering. That started the dollar rally. And when the Fed basically ended their pace of 75 basis point increases and started to decelerate the cadence of their hikes, that ended the dollar rally. So to me, I can get some pretty good mid-single digit yields in emerging market bonds and then I can also benefit from the weakness in the dollar by owning local currency bonds. So we're long that as a way to play emerging markets uh, on, on the sovereign side. Interesting. And that, uh, Stephen, I think that answers your question. He was asking what happens to the U.S. dollar if interest rates stop rising. Uh, 
on that, we have a couple of questions related. A lot of people, probably because there's a lot of conversation happening on Twitter, a lot of people asking about uh, currency alternatives. So th this is just one. Uh, the economic situation, this is from Trillion X, is better in EM. Peter, any thought on de-dollarization and the emergence of a BRIC currency as an alternative to the U.S. dollar post-2024? Another question similarly about uh, Saudi Arabia settling in Yuan. What, do you, are, are you paying much attention to this narrative about de-dollarization, Peter? I, I am, and uh, I, I'm definitely reading opinions on both sides. My, my, my thought on this is that this is something that's going to be more of an evolution of things and that it's going to take decades to play out in terms of the diversification in certain things away from the dollar. Because of the because the U.S. economy is still an outsized presence in the global economy, it will still be uh, a, a major source of transactions and therefore will still be a, the reserve currency. Or maybe you can call it a reserve currency. Maybe it has other, maybe the yuan becomes another reserve currency. Now, obviously, depending on what they do with convertibility and so on. But this is something that just plays out over time. Uh, but yeah, it potentially is going to be a headwind for the dollar. I think no doubt. I think in the shorter term, it's going to be less relevant because I just don't think the numbers are going to be big enough to move the flow. But I do think it's another chink in the armor of the dollar dominance and that over time, uh, the dollar as a percent of global transactions, the dollar as a percent of central bank reserves will continue to go down as the world sort of diversifies away. But the dollar will still have very much a dominant presence. It just may be a bit less so over the coming years. Yeah, that that really lines up. For those of you who haven't seen my interview with Harris Kupperman, it lines up with what Cuppy was talking about too, just a, a reallocation thinking about it through the lens of a reallocation of capital, less than the sort of political conversation that seems to dominate. For those of you who are interested, I also would encourage you to go read, if you haven't already, Javier Blas, the energy reporter on Bloomberg, put a really great piece out some time ago uh, titled The Myth of the Inevitable Rise of a Petro Yuan. It was in February. It's an excellent, excellent article. And it's, again, it's not political. It's He just covers the energy market really closely for Gulf producers. Um, and it's a really great take in it, in it that, that he touches on some of the reasons that that might not happen. Um, it's really worth a read. Um, I found it very interesting. So I encourage you all to go do that if you are interested in that issue of de-dollarization, at least when, as it uh, applies to oil markets. Um, we have uh, Ralph asking, um, when does Peter think the PBOC might raise rates? Are you, are you looking at economic policy coming from uh, China, or are you really just playing that reopening when you're for your bullish theme, Peter? It's really more of the reopening. I, I think the, the PBOC, a lot of the, the commentary, you know, of course, the, we, we got with, with the party congress and, and the changes that uh, Xi made at the top, um, there was a, actually a bit more stability at the PBOC than thought. Uh, I don't think that they're looking to really change policy, at least right now. I think they're going to be steady state. Uh, so I don't, I don't expect much change here. I'm more really trying to find a way to play the, the, the Chinese consumer. Now, there is a part of the Chinese consumer that certainly will have PTSD from the uh, from COVID and that it's not just going to be a straight line up and the Chinese are going to just be busting out spending. I think it's going to something that will continue to to envelop over the coming quarters. But it's something that uh, I think the world lost over 
uh, three years and that we're going to hopefully get back. Um, the Chinese tourists spent $250 billion in 2019. And uh, a lot of that basically went to zero outside of some mainland traveling. So um, that, that, that's the way I'm, I'm, I'm viewing China. And But I, I think that um, PBOC is not going to look to really change policy much. If anything, it's just been more of a tweak. Yeah, we all know how we felt coming out of COVID. I think some of us still have PTSD. Um, we've got to wrap it there, but I just wanted to, to Peter's point, we have a great comment um, from uh, someone, um, try give on our uh, chat, on our platform. I think spelling out exactly what you're talking about, about this sort of lag of pricing, Peter. Um, and he's saying our company has contracts with various states. We didn't have the flexibility to raise prices as our costs increase. As those contracts roll over, we can increase prices. There is a pricing lag for us. And I think that's exactly, thank you for that anecdote. I think it's exactly what you're talking about. It's hard to time this. And those pricing pressures may exist for longer than any of us can really anticipate. That's exactly right. And, and an example I probably have given on, on Real Vision before is that if, if, if I'm a, a vendor and Walmart is a customer of mine and my costs have gone up 30, 40% in a couple of years, uh, I'm not calling up Walmart and saying, hey, uh, I'm going to start charging 30 to 40% higher right now. Walmart would say, go screw yourself and, and we'll find somebody else. But what you do is you, you, you feed out price increases over many years to recapture that, that, that spike in your costs. And that's why there's still more price increases to come, not because the company's costs are going up anymore, they may even start going down, but they're gonna do their best to get their profit margins back to where they were pre-COVID, or I should say pre-inflation. Yeah, absolutely, it's a great point. Peter, always fantastic to have you on. Thanks to all of you for those these awesome questions. I, we got to as many as we could. We'll, we'll keep on doing it. Um, and everyone remember, uh, markets are closed tomorrow. The jobs report comes out, but markets will be closed, um, at least uh, U.S. markets, uh, equity markets. But we will be back on Monday. I hope you all have a fantastic weekend. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Maggie. Good luck and take care. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.